Today I'm speaking of memory. Memory is an aspect of our experience as human beings. When we utilize memory with wisdom and love, it becomes a reference point for a direction from God to God, from the universe to the universe of love, of integrity, of noble virtue embodied with prayer, trust, and the great beauty of life, the experience we call life. And what occurs for all human beings, really, is a hesitation wherein we experience memory in the present moment and we don't quite go forward completely into the next breath and moment, embodying where we come from in holiness, what we aspire to in virtue. We hesitate and tend to say, I who have died am here. I who am a victim am here. I who have hurt others am here. I'm a terrible bully. I'm horribly disfigured and injured. I'm, I'll bite you before you bite me. We turn into predator and prey and we mask the experience that is the prism-like embodiment of who we really are, the soul in the body within ourselves, embracing the universe in the next moment. We hesitate to protect ourselves so we might live the next moment and the next, or we might live the next and the next over you, like beyond you, better than you. And so <clears throat> when we take this to an extreme, we can become a person who's harming other countries, devastating rainforests, harming other tribes, our own spouses and children or elders, ourselves, our bodies. And we are causing this violence that amplifies until we come out of the tantrum of who did we think we were? And the answer correctly would be, we didn't know. We cause all this violence and it has absolutely nothing to do with who you or I really are. And so the next moment becomes one of sort of awe. Well, then what shall I do? How, how shall I go forward into the next moment? And so I, I want to utilize memory here as a reference point of safe harbor, safely being anchored, the soul and the body, safe passage in time. So that what you face every moment, or I face every moment, and we face together every moment, is lovingly wisdom practiced, innocence practiced, goodness, heartfulness. And then something is revealed to us in the next moment rather than grasped at by us. And in this culture where the world is very um, competitive in the press or bank accounts or experiences people have, I go, when will it stop? And people think, well, when Gaia, the earth gives up, 
or when somebody loses and somebody wins or we figure it out. But the truth is, one is like a prism, refracting light, expressing sound. The atoms of creation in your own body and one's own body and one is responsible for what happens through that body to everyone and everything. That's who you are. That's who I am. So we have many stories of saintly or sage-like people, people of what we call holiness or people of wisdom. And we have a reference point for how they dressed or where they lived or what they are ascribed to have said. And many of the ones who seem to find heaven are not terribly defined by the earthbound creations. And so, unfortunately, we've, we sort of worship their lack of possessions. We say, well, Neem Karoli Baba or Ananda Maima would walk through India with, you know, just their clothing and whatever food people brought forward for them that day. I could say, well, the billionaires do the same thing. I would tend to say that Neem Karoli Baba or Ananda Maima might have proffered a prayer of gratitude or a nodding of their head to the person who met them deeply enough to feed them. Or maybe Neem came into someone's house with a big bag of mangoes given to him by someone at a market and an old woman who was dying was aware, oh, we're going to have mangoes this day before I die. How could Maharaji have ever known? Or the woman at the market have ever known? You know, maybe they didn't know anything. But somehow the prism of that old woman's life was met by the divine, by the universe, in a gesture of the ripe mango on her last day, carried into her little humble home with a dirt floor and a rope bed. No one is wealthier than she is in God or you are in the universe, ever. From eternity into eternity, everywhere. And yet this direction can't be possessed. It can rather be realized. And my experience is that every moment it is being revealed to us and most of us aren't really paying attention to that. We are paying attention to accomplishing something where the cells of our body will have enough or more. Or is my child safe with that stranger walking by? Or my car with that person driving by and their car is bigger than mine or I only have a bicycle or my car is new and the insurance premium is too high because they're gouging me instead of giving me the fair price they would want and my neighbor would want because some corporate person has decided to make, I remember reading last week, someone was making 5,400 times what their average employee was making. And as I read that I in an article, I was aware, hmm, there's an aspect of realization here in a different proportion. The maple tree with a bird on its branch is not necessarily taking up 5,400 times as much sunlight as the little rhododendron bush or the red cedar beside it. Rather, there is a different symbiosis. 
The red cedar, which might live hundreds of years, eventually grows into the tall canopy of the Pacific Northwest rainforest and takes a certain quality of light. And yet the maple tree lives in the sun and shadow, dappling it by the red cedar's side. There's a harmonic, harmonic. So let us be with bringing forward the harmonic of your memory, of your actual soul, your spiritual heart, the cells of the body of who you really are from eternity into eternity, every moment of this current incarnation, which is you or me or us together, you with a spouse or in solitude, you with a companion or alone, you with siblings or an only child, you with your parents alive or now late in the heavens or as ancestors who've set a course for you, not the whole way for you, but part of the way to show you this way, son, daughter, you might live to fulfill why we are here, why you are now here. And also that you will fulfill what goes on beyond you after your time here. You are a seed of that, that the light of God be refracted through you, the sound of God be expressed through you and all around you, that wherever you have been, just as in the Aborigine language in Australia, the song line of you is a safe touchstone for any young Aborigine who should ever be to know, walk this way. Be careful that way. This is a good way for you, the human being. This might be a more dissonant or difficult or less light-filled way within yourself. That direction is always safe. Then what happens to your physical body is important. It is your life, and yet it becomes of heaven, not of the predator, not of the prey. And then when someone asks, well, what do you have? Who do you think you are? You are turning in the direction of where God dwells in that being where heaven moves forward in that being, so that you might meet one another of heaven on earth. And that is the Holy Family. It's really the only thing interesting to study. Unfortunately, historically, when we tend to try to practice this, we have many stories of threat. Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him at war. Lao Tzu being thought of as, oh, he's just too involved with nature. He isn't as sophisticated in his clothing as Confucius would have been, don't you know? See, and we start comparing, trying to make the prism of the sage or the saint opaque, rather than studying the eternal light or the revealed light and sound and creation of who is Lao Tzu. What touchstone of eternity moved through that human being? So that if he and Confucius, or Confucius and Muhammad, or Muhammad and Mary should meet, it would be revealed to us all, oh, a rainbow, a prism of light, multiple individual lights 
embodying the prism of the sacred of your incarnation and mine, a harmonic. And when we face that direction, I find that it always meets us. So I'm going to use a few stories from my most recent um, journey these these last days up to uh, the Pacific Northwest. I was privileged to go out into the rainforest, the Olympic rainforest. We have our continents of land upon the earth, our major continents. I live in the continent of North America. And over millions of years, these continents have moved and changed, and eventually they will be different than they are. The very westernmost parts of the North American continent begin at the San Andreas Fault that runs all the way up the southern California desert valleys. Uh, just at the base of Joshua Tree, you can see the chasm where a dark shadow is there, and it's where the fault exists. And I was in an earthquake there some years ago, and the sound was incredible. Not just light, it was near dawn, before dawn, and there was this sound. The sides of the earth were scraping against one another, and the part further west was moving slowly, slipping up, heading northward, until, as geologists will say, oh, in another, I don't know how many years, in another million years, where the, where the fault is down by Joshua Tree now, it'll be probably up about Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo. Another million years, if the earth continues, it'll be until eventually it's way up where Alaska is now. So we have the westernmost part of the continent of North America, and that when that hits the San Francisco Bay Area, part of the fault there is on top of, or underneath and on top of, the faults are laying on top of each other, so the earthquakes that hit there don't slip along side by side. They're more shaking up and down, so the damage to the buildings or any being standing on the earth from a horse to a possum to a beautiful songbird feel the sense that there's more danger the earth moves in a more radical way because the release of all of this tension is is much more argumentative between the plates there's nowhere to let the pressure go just so the pressure of your memory when you do not find a harmonic within yourself your family of origin, your ancestors, can be the slipping by of my brother remembered it this way. It was a hard day for him or a beautiful one. Ah, where it was a hard day for me or a beautiful one for me. The memories can slip by one another rather than pounding against each other where we each have an individual experience and we have an experience together how shall he be? How shall I be? How shall we be that we find our way to the continent of the human family together? So if we take North America and we go out to the western, northwestern parts of, of the United States and we come to Washington State, there's an area where the, where the coast would seem to end, but a little peninsula juts out called the Olympic Peninsula. It's not actually part of the North American continent. There was a very small area called, um, in, in archaeology and in, ge in geology, a terrain, T-E-R-R-A-N-E, -E, a small little group, like an island or a group of several islands, and it migrated 
toward the North American continent or the North American continent had moved toward the terrain and they collided. And when they collided, the, the small terrain sort of slipped a little bit underneath the huge North American plate and pushed up. And as it pushed up, the Olympic Mountains formed. They're young and majestic. And they are so um, protectively high, you might say, that they keep the Seattle area, the Puget Sound area, more temperate. It doesn't get quite so much rain. It doesn't get quite so cold. The mountains form a little boundary, as does your mind, your personality, your emotions, your skin of your physical body. So when one goes out to that area, it's not deeply developed with human beings. There are probably 20,000 people living on the entire peninsula, maybe maybe more, maybe 100,000. But a great deal of it was delegated to become Olympic National Park in the early 1930s of this past century. And there are rainforests there, two different types. And they used to go all the way from parts of British Columbia or Alaska and British Columbia all the way down to Central California along the ocean over many, many years, several million years. And now they only exist in certain parts of North America. But walking, driving into them and walking into them, I was able to sit in, in these areas with incredible ancient trees and young trees and mosses and hummingbirds and Roosevelt elk and rivers and gravel bars and uh, small rock outcroppings at the sea and sand. And as I would sit and John and his son would go off and hike and I'm not able to with my body as I grow older, those two prisms would walk deep into the forest and I would sit at a bench and as people would pass by, I met people of all generations, many nations. And I was aware that the conversations were surprising to a lot of the people because they were unafraid to talk to me about how special certain aspects of what they were experiencing were for them. I would watch one middle-aged woman have a kind of astonishment and say, I've walked all along here, this place where you're sitting, it is so beautiful. I said, I know, it's a perfection. She said, I, I think you may be in the most perfect spot I've seen all along my walk here. I said, isn't it something that we get to see this today? And we wish each other a beautiful day. Etched in our souls, how did we meet? How many ancestors does she have who went through grace or deprivation so that the direction of the prism of God or of the universe moving through her and moving through me is a seed of what the Hopi and Iroquois and Zuni and Pueblo people call the great peace. Every child on the earth now is part of that tribe as John and Taylor walked into the forest, great trees beyond any weapons, that Taylor might live far beyond my years and his father's to embody a peace. 
uh, a quality of the virtue of his cells, representing, not denying Jesus, not fighting in the wars of Muhammad, not having someone think, oh, a Buddhist monk, we don't have to feed him, but of his being ripe and filled with light and of the sound of the music of the spheres so that he and his wife-to-be, Jakari, to be married late this September up near that same rainforest in Canada, they know who they are. They are safe in what is revealed to them through their hearts, their souls, every part of who they are as human beings, so that through the virtue of their selves, they're both physicians, they turn to a patient. And rather than diagnosing something wrong with the patient, they diagnose, ah, my direction is of their health, as I, the physician in Hippocrates' mantle, know how to help the disease fall away, that the prism of that person's light and sound, a human being of the creation of the infinite, whether we call this a divine name or a secular name, it is well. Oh, my heart is at ease, natural and noble and loving just as a red cedar tree, a cowrie tree in the, the north area of, of New Zealand, just as a sequoia further south in California. The place in this has a quality of silence. There's no answer back against God, against the light, against the sound, that is received as sanctified, as blessed. The cells of the younger person knowingly go into the future. And they come from ancestors who climbed mountains or fought wars or starved or were diseased and others who succeeded and were kind or angry or truthful or disrespectful. Yet, Beyond the places that were not virtuous, the young person knows my memories are to take me in the direction of the goodness of life, of respect, of willingly receiving what is revealed to you in the next moment and to me, which meets beyond any veil that I might be safely beside Jesus, safely beside Guru Nanak and his family, safely beside Aristotle, safely beside that which moves through the great poet or weaver or farmer or pregnant mother. Then what occurs is a place in us that knows it is safe for me to live now is a child of heaven on earth. And I want to use a quote from uh, a book I'm reading now. I've spoken before of my love for a beautiful book, a novel or novella written some years ago 
And so we have Western writers who would be known for their devotion to freedom and expression in the wilderness and um, the quality of allowing the, the natural world and seasons to help sculpt their intelligence and philosophy of life and humanity. So one of the writers I was most moved by, I discovered, I don't know how old I was, a young woman, the, the writer Norman MacLean, who wrote a book called A River Runs Through It. So I bought the book years ago and uh, was so moved by it and was aware that it's not a long novel. It's not several hundred pages. It's more of what's called a novella, like a, like a brief novel. And it's based upon his own family. And it's written because his father asked him to write it. So his father, a minister, a Protestant minister and fisherman, asked him, Norman, when you're able, please write a story of our family. And so his son did. So the son was a professor in Chicago for years, a professor of the English language, and also an avid fisherman. And then the esteemed actor and director, Robert Redford, whom I got to see last year at a presentation his wife offered of extraordinary music and, and her art with the Dallas Symphony. Sitting in the audience, here was Redford, who had directed that film years ago with young actors, beautiful rivers in Montana, such a moving story told, Norman McLean's story of his father's story, then told by the actor, director. And then as I've said before, at the very last scene, there's a river and there's Norman McLean fishing in it. So anyone who observes the film thinks, who, who's that older fisherman? Well, it's him. The person who told his father's request, please son, tell our family's story. And that goes out into as long as we'll have film. We can read the book of Norman McLean as long as we could read letters of the English language or translate into other human languages. And so what happens in a, in a family like this, there's the way light is embodied. Then there's the way shadows embodied. Norman's younger brother, Paul, who was larger than life, the best fisherman in the family, died mysteriously, violently. It's not resolved. It's a great heartbreak in his father. It remained a great heartbreak in the brother, Norman. Please, son, tell my other son your younger brother's story and yours and mine and your mother's and all of us, that we might be well, well enough in virtue that when I pray, I can bear it. That when I go to fly fish, my heartbreak of grief is also fulfilled in the dappled light through the trees, the seasons of the spring and the summer and the fall and the winter. That I might understand in great mystery, the light and calling the shadow of the light I do not yet understand forward, that there be heaven on earth, not hell on earth. I include also my mentor, Houston Smith, whom I adore. His widow is still alive, bless her heart. She's 100 years old this year, still living in their family home in Berkeley. They had daughters. One daughter and family are, God willing, thriving. 
They're in my prayers every day. The other daughter was murdered. The murder was never found. Houston talked with me several times about this, but one time in his study in San Diego, we talked about it was so hard for him. He had studied world religions and philosophies all of his life, practiced them to the best of his ability as a son, a husband, a father, not perfect. He knew his own sort of brilliant fussiness and irritable nature, kind but gruff. And he could not understand a universe in which this light of his life, you know, he had different lights, the light of his wife, the light of one daughter, the light of the other daughter, in which the light that was the prism of this part of light moving through him and of his wife and himself and of her sister and her gone now, where did that light go? Why? Who? When? What happened? Okay, so I'm using these examples because we live in a time when people justify. It's really hard for me. It was really hard for Norman McLean and his mother's parents. And yet he wrote a prismatic novella of his family, including his brother. So that the light moving through his brother Paul is infinitely realized from eternity to eternity. Through the cells of his body, every breath that brother lived before and after. And within himself. And he's no longer alive, but his son John McLean is, I, I don't know him, but I'm going to read a quote from from a book that he also wrote about his family, where he tells more of the nonfiction story of what his father writes about in River Runs Through It. So the quality of what happened in Houston Smith's life, the same. He would go to a conference, he would edit a book, he would write another one, he would mentor a, a graduate student or a young professor, he would be present with his wife or scholars or his own enjoyment of the day. And no one and nothing could replace the light where his late daughter had existed. And nothing answered the great chaos of the not knowing of what happened to her and why. How could this possibly happen to her? How could this possibly happen to Paul? So I use these examples respectfully. Years ago, the late Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh asked me to oversee an afternoon in Plum Village in France, working with women who had been harmed in some way throughout their lives, had been uh, molested or harmed or beaten or raped. There were many women. There was a class of several hundred people taking a very long course. And so many women had asked for this attention that Ty asked me if I would meet for one to three afternoons and we would gauge what was the need in the in the various women? So we quietly met and and saw this through. And a great deal of the of the premise to go forward was from the past 
to the present moment into the next breath. What is the name of the woman and what is your name? My name is Beth. And going around in a circle, each woman bowing to the Buddha to be and all of us who were gathered there. And in Thai, our greater teacher overseeing this at his, the sanctuary of his beautiful um, retreat center in southern France. And then going around in the circle, and what happened to you where the light in the prism went out? Only one or two sentences, only a brief paragraph. What happened to that part of the light? And then going around. Still, each one of us prismatically 99% filled with the mysterious light of eternity, of God, of the universe. Who are we that our remembrance allows the one facet of the prism so opaque or grayed or violated that we go, I don't know how to integrate this. Yet one is not the entirety of only that facet of the prism of oneself. And then we went around in a circle again. And who are you beyond that? Who are you, the, the greater, I'll use this word here, I didn't in that class, but who are you, the greater prism? The Buddha to be. Ah, so wonderful to be with you. And so one is not broken, one is not deceased, one has not been destroyed, one is heartbreakingly here with something that has happened. Some of our heartbreaks are tiny, but they might affect us a great deal. Some of them are moderate, but they might afflict us through shame and loss and violence and chaos and treachery and poverty and confusion and illness, all kinds of things. And yet, this great prism, multifaceted, embodying the light of heaven through you, that is the Buddha to be. And it is in each one of us. And through centering ourselves in that, we find through Norman MacLean, or his mother and father, his son, his son's mother. We find the signature of ourselves bowing to the Buddha-to-be and John McLean. Oh, and you through fly fishing. A secular way to be with the divine. So every time that young man went out and fished, he speaks of the spirit of his late Uncle Paul being present. The memory. Showing a way that integrates the loss, the life cut short, and yet goes on with the life of his father, Norman McLean, living many years. Goes on in you and in me. 
And we are in a mystery with this where we're not in a control that becomes violent. This is important because the modern culture is very intellectually violent. We come in and we practice a kind of wokeness of judgment. I'm very mindful. And uh, I don't think your designer jacket is as cool as it needs to be. I'm very mindful. Excuse me, can I just push through you with your cane? Whoops, sorry, I almost tripped you. Don't really care. We over and over violate one another, staying in a place where we're still a predator. And not like named Curly Baba or Nanda Maima, walking through the world, seeking the holiness, moving as light and sound of heaven through one another and ourselves. That direction is always safe, everywhere. That's who we are. Then when we come from this place, moment by moment, heaven reveals to us, there's the Buddha to be in that person's eyes. There's the Buddha to be in waving to that little boy. There's the Buddha to be in stepping aside and letting the younger people go by. They're enthusiastic, having a great time. And they go, oh, sorry, I go, it's okay, have a great journey. And I walk forward with my cane. One is responsible for living from that place of the memory of heaven in you every moment into this breath and the next breath and moment, which becomes your life until it is your last breath and your life blossoms as a prism of all color, all sound of heaven, everywhere you've ever been. Does anyone know your name? Uh, everyone knows this name. Everyone knows you by that name. They always have, they always will. You simply never betray it. So John McLean was a young man in his, he thinks he was in his early teens uh, because they were letting him go through brush that was too rigorous for a little boy. So he was attributing his memory to, I must have been in my early adolescence, going up a river and he was irritating his father by helping his father fly fish, but the line was getting caught in snacks too often and uh, being problematic. So his father directed him to fish with somebody else. And he sent him to a man whose name is George Cronin's, Cronenberg's, George Cronenberg's, who was a neighbor. And his father told him to fish with George, he said to him. Sorry, let me find this. He says, from here on, you're with him. Do what he tells you and shows you to do. This marked the start of my lifelong bond with a man who progressively became my hero, tutor, companion, and oldest friend. This is from a book called Home Waters.
So his father, when he was starting to become upset with his son disturbing his fly fishing, didn't just say, stay with me, I'm losing all the fish. I'm causing violence against my son with my judgments or my emotions. No, he directed him to another man. Here, son, I don't have a weapon here and neither does George. Go and walk with him. We're fishing together. We're beyond warfare. Masterful way to teach a child peace. Entrusting to the son the provenance, the wisdom of another man. And yet, not letting him go as his son, they fished together for the rest of his father's life. Yet he introduced him to another man's mentoring. I must say I engage this with human beings every day. Every day there's someone where I turn to what in them is of the Buddha or of Jesus, and my life is better for their opening a grocery bag at the store and helping me to package, put cherries in the bag, noting the color of their amber eyes and strawberry blonde hair, their young, strong body, and thanking them. Right? Prism to prism to prism to prism. So my own father would take me up to several places to fish, but I've spoken in classes before about Catherine Creek, which was his favorite place to fly fish. His fly fishing pole still sits in John's study in Austin. And walking with my father, he would say almost nothing. We might be gone for two hours, and he might not say anything to me. His euphoria at the creek or brook and the trees and the grasses and the dragonflies and the fish and the pebbles and his young daughter beside him what more was there than my father, a prism of God? And so when I was on the Olympic Peninsula, I was aware as I started reading this book, you know, my father taught me to do this. I, I imagine every conference I've ever visit, attended, every word I've ever studied in world religions, every concept I've ever held in intellectual ideas, every aspect of helping people with anything in their lives comes from the deep wellspring of standing beside my father at Catherine Creek. He knew exactly how to be a prism. His Alsatian French ancestors, his Frisian Island ancestors of the Netherlands. Anything they had ever been good, bad, virtuous, corrupt, moved through him until there was only his faith in the light of his heritage, in himself, in my mother, in his children, and he set me in that direction. I'm always in that direction. I never leave that direction. So in our scars that we carry, and we all have them, some of them don't leave a mark that's tangible, but they leave a mark of remembrance. And so you want to remember, I went through something when I was 2 or 20 or 80 
or in a war or a famine or a divorce or a, a way I was tricked by someone I loved or a way I myself am ashamed because I was treacherous or I caused harm. One is to remember this, but allow the opacity of it, the opaque part, to just become a prism through which the light of eternity moves. And the sound of heaven and of the beauty of creation, so that that prism becomes transparent, refracting that the memory is there, but it is of light, forgiven, realized, that heaven shows us forward through our ancestors and our own memory, the present moment into Thich Nhat Hanh's present moment, wonderful moment, next breath, eternity, everywhere, always. If we take my right hand, I've told the story many times of going out and I was younger than Norman was the day he was sent off to, to fish with George, but I, I snagged my line. Mine was a little spinning reel, not a, no, I wasn't, we weren't fly fishing at that age. So my little reel, I, I, I flipped up to, to cast the line and it snagged in the tree. And as I pulled it down, it went into my hand. I've told this story many times teaching, I, the fish hook went right into the palm of my right hand. I was aware I could try to get it out, but I should be responsible and have an adult help me. So I walked two doors down to where a wonderful woman and her husband, her late husband, had been a doctor. She had been his nurse. I was aware that she could help me with this. I came and knocked at the door and apologized and told them I didn't want to wake my parents. I'd been trying to catch breakfast for them to surprise them. But could they help me with the fish hook? So at age 70 here, 65 years later, if you look at my hand, it is alive and walked with my cane in it, my walnut cane, through the trees and the forest and at the seashore in the deep northwest with ancient trees and young wildflowers. And my wonderful, healthy hand, alive, where we are listening and being together in such love. Oh, and look at the little scar marked in the skin of my hand. But open to the light of all dimensions of God everywhere through the universe. And the sound of the universe everywhere through everyone and everything. So that whatever we call this, from what we come, from where we come, from whom we come, and in this moment of great mystery, there is only love. And we embody in life, the principle of reverently caring for this in everyone, everywhere, and always. And then we know who we are. Our memory becomes the safe direction, shaping our discernment that the heart wisely opens and we are revealed. Oh, this is why we're here, you and I. This is what we're to do. And this is what George told the young John McLean. He said, if you want to know a secret, I'll tell you one, George would say. When I'm sitting beside a stream, trying to see what's driving the fish up, 
I try to get the flies. These are little flies you tie with feathers and different materials and a hook to look like insects and little um, insects or uh, tiny uh, seeds or insects the, the fish would want to feed on. So George and these different men would tie their own flies as my father used to when, when he was still alive. When I'm sitting beside a stream, trying to see what's driving the fish up, I try to get the flies between me and the sun. Not so much to see their color. That's important, but more important than color is radiance. How do they light up? Radiance is what makes the difference. So as you stand in the light of God, the light of the universe, it is not so much how you look, what you're wearing, what you own. It's more, how is the radiance of eternity passing through the prism of you or me or a billionaire or an impoverished farmer or a wealthy farmer and a person who's lost their entire company? How is the radiance represented that we allow it to live within us so that we are completely of heaven on earth, just as those men studied the sacred in the brooks and streams and rivers of Montana and of Sealy Lake. Such a blessing for all of humankind. Let us pray and practice. Remembrance. Memory.